Uh, I have two sons, and in kind of a, a pleasant quirk of timing, they are both present here today. Uh, furthermore, my wife Jane, Jackson's wife Danielle, are both at this very moment attending my other son Brian's fiance's bridal shower, which means the ball men have been loose on Bloomington, <laughs> untempered by our female counterparts for almost 48 hours. So far, we've managed to avoid trouble, but the day is not yet over. I, I bring up my sons for, for a purpose, and that is, um, and if, if you have children, especially when there's not many of you here, I realize, who have older children, you realize that your children tend to reflect you, right? For example, um, Jackson, when he was in high school and early college, he and I had the exact same physical build during that time of our lives. And Jackson also has this kind of uh, drive in him. He likes to build things. And I've, I like to do that kind of stuff too. I've built deck furniture for my house. And before we moved from Gosport, uh, Brian and I actually built a climbing gym in half of our garage. And recently, Jackson, kind of to my amazement, uh, he ordered a bunch of computer components, put them together, and the thing actually works. Not that I'm surprised that he could do it. I'm just impressed that, 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 that he could do it. He also has this, this F1 car simulator in his basement. I don't know if some of you have seen it. And I've sat in it and I've played on it. And it, I mean, it feels like you're in an F1 car. Motion sickness, puking, and everything. It's awesome. You know, so, so he builds stuff. Brian and I kind of share personality traits. We're, we're both kind of easygoing. Uh, we'd rather make peace than, than confront um, and we both have a really a love for physical fitness. So at 8.30 this morning, I'm busy on my stationary bike getting my mileage and in 10 miles, or 10 miles, 10 feet away, he's doing what, insanity or something, going back and forth like this, or sweat dripping, testosterone's flowing. It's, it's, like, it's like an Olympic training center at our house when he's living there with us. And we all love climbing. Uh, Jackson likes a type of climbing called traditional climbing. Brian likes sport climbing. I like them both. I'll climb anything you put before me. It doesn't matter to me. So we, sh we share these things, and I bring this up, and the point is, children reflect parents. There's a lot of truth to the saying, like father, like son. Now, for those of you with younger children, you might be saying, oh, that's cool. In a few years, when they get older, they're going to be like me. We're going to do stuff together. This also includes negative traits. Let me warn you. Right? But we've, and, and that's just a matter of, for example, J Jackson's build is a genetic thing. But my boys have spent, respectively, almost 23 and 25 years with me. And so through this process of socialization, they've, they've become, pick up some of my habits, the nuances of my speaking, language, and that sort of thing. But the point is this, and this is what we're going to see in James today, is that it should be no less natural for those of us who are the adopted children of God to reflect Him as well. Now, we don't come across that by a genetic process necessarily. We come across that by being around him, being in his word, and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning is how much, how well, or in what way do we reflect our Heavenly Father. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're going to look, yes, at the last two verses of chapter 1 of James page 1011, and it is just two verses, so I'm going to give you a moment to slam your chair and open your Bibles so we can have our full and undivided attention on James 1, verses 26 and 27. And James says there, 
If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word is... uh, so beautiful, so powerful, uh, so encouraging, and yes, um, even convicting. And we thank you for all of that. We ask that your word would work in us and through us today that would be transformed by it, that our lives would be changed by it. And we just give you all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So with his customary abruptness, James leaps from what we saw two weeks ago, broad exhortations about God's word, to three very specific marks of Christian living. Two weeks ago, we were exhorted to be quick to hear and receive God's implanted word, to be a doer of the word, to persevere in God's word. And then suddenly, we look at these two verses, and James is saying, hey, if your religion is general or genuine, you will control your tongue, you will help the needy, and you will demonstrate holiness. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen an abrupt segue. Two weeks ago, Chris kind of talked about how James can be kind of choppy, kind of like Proverbs, where you get hit with this idea, and then this idea, and then this idea, right? But I think a better way to look at the book of James, and I can't remember, because it's been on and off, if any of those who have preached on on James thus far have mentioned this, but the book of James kind of reads like a preacher's sermon notes, right? It has a structure of a sermon. It has an introduction. It has a conclusion. It has a a clear body. But that choppiness is is kind of, for example, if I were to just give you this right now and say, let's say I I woke up sick this morning and my backup plan is, well, I'm not going to preach. I'm not going to make anybody else preach. I'm just going to hand out my notes. And you have my notes before you. Jesse, you got my notes up there. Can you make heads or tails out of that thing at all? He's, uh, right, because I'm here to speak. I'm, I'm here to fill in, in, in the blanks. I'm here to fill in the transitions. And that's what we see here with James. And there is a pathway, and Chris talked about it two weeks ago, that if we, if we start at verse 18, we see that we have a new birth, that by his will and by his word, he brought us to this new birth, purposing that we would be his first fruits, that we should be specially his and notably holy. And then in verses 19 to 25, two weeks ago, we take that new birth, and James now describes the growth of this new life, that we put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. We receive the implanted word. We be doers of the word. We look into the law, and we persevere. We are born, we grow, and then this week in verses 26 and 27, James is going to describe the characteristics that this new life will display as we grow. We have a new birth, we grow into a new life, a new nature, and then we display the characteristics of this new nature. Now, before we get into the actual text, two overarching concepts I want us to keep in mind as we go. First is this word religion, which is used in some form three times in these two verses, yes? If you were to go do a man-on-the-street type survey in downtown Bloomington, and you ask 20 people, what does the word religion mean? You would certainly get 20 different answers. Many of them would overlap, 
But mo- and many of them would have this concept, that religion is the things that you do to please God. And that's kind of a natural conclusion because, as we have talked about before here, many of the religions of the world do just that. But not Christianity. We know that there is nothing we can do to please God. That it is only through Christ that we are reconciled to him. So the word religion here, as James uses, it can't possibly mean that. And it doesn't. The word here is threskos. Nailed it. I asked Stephen before how to pronounce the word. And what what this word means is the external manifestation of spirituality. That is, our relationship to God is rooted in what our life demonstrated. In other words, our lives express what we think about God. It's not conduct to please God. It's conduct that reflects God, much like my son's characteristics reflect me. So James is going to offer us three areas of behavior that are going to provide a sufficient test of our spirituality. Now, this is not a comprehensive list of what a Christian should do. So that list is like this. But James is saying, I can take this, this, and this, and if I measure a follower of Christ against that, I can come to some conclusions. A pollster would probably call this a representative sampling. Religion, then, is what do our actions reflect? So that's the overarching concept number one. As we talk about the word religion, not what you can do to please God, but what you reflect about what you think about God. Second one, James would say the great goal of all of life for the Christian or for the Christ follower is Christian maturity. That's where we're headed. I don't know if you're a goal setter. I'm a goal setter in my life, whether it's in climbing, whether it's in what I want to read in Scripture in a given year, like Chase just mentioned, they're trying to read through the Bible in a year. I'm a goal setter. The goal of every Christian is maturity. That means that life's pleasant gifts, life's pleasant paths are made sweeter knowing we're moving in that direction. It means that life's grim moments, as we have talked about, counted joy and suffering, James has told us, that we endure those patiently as patience and persistence turn sorrows into the stepping stones toward, toward maturity. So the question then is this. What does Christian maturity look like? If that's where we're headed, if that's our goal, what does it look like when we get there? It looks like our Heavenly Father, whose image we bear. It looks like our Savior, who gave everything for us. In Matthew 5, Jesus is, uh, is, it's the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his disciples, and I want to quote this extensively. Here is what Christian maturity looks like. He says this, Jesus, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be, get ready for it, sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not, do not even the Gentiles do the same. And here we have it. You, therefore, 
must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is our mark. Now, we all know we're not going to achieve that this side of heaven, but that is our goal. And James has already brought us into touch with this. In verse 5, he said, God is ready to give us his wisdom. In verse 18, he says, he has brought us forth as his children. He's already alluded to this idea, maturity, be like the Father. So with those two things in mind, that religion is the visible manifestation of what we believe about God, how it is reflected in our lives, and the great goal for the believer is Christian maturity, we're going to address two questions. First question is this, what will life be like if it is controlled by the Father's wisdom? And secondly, what will life be like if it is the outworking of our new nature as children of God? And James is going to offer us three tests, three measures, three standards by which we can look at ourselves and say, are we growing? Are we maturing? Are we moving towards that goal of being more like our Heavenly Father? Are you ready? Test number one, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, reflects who God is, and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. What we say is kind of an interesting thing, especially in in this age. So when, when we say tongue in the year 2017, we mean the spoken word, we mean Facebook, we mean texting, we mean Instagram, we mean all of those other things I do not yet understand because of my age. All of those things. And what's interesting is much of what occurs in those venues comes out of our subconscious, right? You ever, you ever speak without thinking and go, oh, I want that back. Let me have that back. I didn't mean that. Did you ever hit send to shudder at what you just wrote, right? Because the tongue is a revealing index of our spiritual health. The tongue is a barometer of the heart, It is the blood pressure gauge of our spiritual well-being. The tongue is the dipstick of the workings of our spiritual engine. Feel free to develop your own simile and insert it there. I thought the dipstick one was kind of creative, to tell you the truth. (laughs) No reaction, so apparently I'm alone in those feelings. So James is not covering new territory here. He didn't wake up one morning and decide, aha, the tongue is a problem. The psalmist, Psalm 34, wrote, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. James is not advocating a silent tongue. We know that. We are to proclaim the gospel. But a controlled tongue. There's a very special connection, a nexus, if you will, between the tongue and the central forces of the personality. James says that if our tongue is unbridled, then our heart is deceived. So, let's say that I think I am religious. Again, meaning I externally express the character of my Heavenly Father. But my tongue is unbridled. I say things that are not reflective of my Heavenly Father. I say things in a manner or tone that is hurtful or demeaning. It's not just the words, but how you say things. And yet I think 
that I am properly religious. James is saying, I am practicing a deception upon myself. I am telling myself things about my inner state which simply are not true. Such a person is like the Pharisee of Luke 18 who said, and he's standing there praying, you may recall this, and next to him is a tax collector who's praying, and the Pharisee says this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And I'm pretty sure our Heavenly Father, the top two things on his list of things we need to reflect about him are not that I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. That's not the heart of what he is after. The tongue and the heart are so linked that the tongue is an accurate index of what we are at the core of our persons. Perhaps James is recalling the words of his brother Jesus when he addressed, you guessed it, Pharisees in Matthew 12. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's interesting that James decided to mention the tongue first of the three tests. As we'll see, this test relates to self-examination. The other two characteristics we're going to look at are linked outwardly to the Father. This one is linked inwardly to the heart. This is a barometer of the Spirit. It asks, what are you? Are you a child of God? Does that mark the tongue reflect a child of God? So, back to our two questions. Is my life controlled by the Father's wisdom? Does my life reflect the outworking of my new nature as a child of God? Test number one. What does my tongue reveal? What does what I say say about who I am? Test number two. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. So these next two aspects of conduct are directly linked to our Heavenly Father. This idea of religion, this outward expression of spirituality, is pointless unless it corresponds to the mind and will of God. James would have our religion be pure and undefiled, in the Father's sight, perfectly in sync with his person and character. So what is this person and character of the Father? Nothing says it more clearly than the message of the gospel. Because spontaneously, without any external command, without any external compelling, moved solely by forces within his own heart and nature, God reached out to us in our need. What need was that? Ephesians tell us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our natural state is in rebellion against the true, holy, and living God. We do not desire him in any way, Romans 3. We seek our own interest. Seeking our own interest is destructive, and the wages of that sin is death. But even while we were rebelling... Even while we were sinning, even while we were still seeking our own interest, God chose in the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to step from his heavenly throne, assume human form, 
and walk among us. He lived the life we never could, not in rebellion as you and I live, but in communion with the Father. He was betrayed, wrongly convicted, and died a criminal's death, our death, a death that we deserve. But through that death, he justified us before our Heavenly Father. He paid our debt. He restored our relationship. He made us adopted children. So where do we look to see what our attitude should be toward those in need around us? We look to Jesus, selfless, sacrificial in meeting our need. So the question for us is this. If the nature and person of God is compassion, selfless and sacrificial, does his life pulse in our veins? Is that who we are? The psalmist in Psalm 68 says this, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows, orphans and widows, is God in his holy habitation. And James does not speak in generalities. He's not like, oh, you should help others. He's very specific. He says, widows and orphans, not generally, specifically. And notice that if we help widows and orphans in need, there is no way we are going to get anything in return. Widows and orphans, especially in first century Palestine, were the most helpless, the most defenseless of any group of people. Helping them meant I could expect zero in return. And also note that these two examples require a costly care for others. Putting oneself in place of a parent for an orphan. If you want to know what kind of commitment that is, ask ask Pastor Matt and Kate. Or taking the side of the needy in a threatening world as with the widow. It's going to cost us. We get nothing in return. This is what we are to do. When we care for those in need, we children of God reflect the likeness of our Father that is within us. That's how that is done. So for the Christ follower, meeting the needs of others is not optional. It's not an add-on to our faith. It's not an elective. It's what we do. Meeting needs is not even peripheral to our faith. It's not, it's not on the side. It's not something we do occasionally. It's not something that's low on the priority list. Meeting needs is central to who we are as Christ followers. It is a focal point of our existence. Let me give you two practical manifestations of that here, here at Redeemer, in case you're not aware of them, and I hope that you are. Um, we have a team here called the Mercy Team, led by uh, Chase and, and Bree, and it's specifically for meeting the physical and material needs of those around us. And they do good work. And you may be completely unaware of it, but there are a number of people in our body and in our community who are aware of it because they have benefited from that need. And they have put together a plan to make that work. I have been a part of a church whose policy it literally was if somebody had a material need that required money, we would not meet that for fear that then people would be lining up to get a handout. Not a Christ-like attitude. But at the same time, We need to be responsible. And these people have put together a great plan to assess needs and to meet needs when they are legitimate and to help people not only have their needs met but get back on their feet so they can meet their own needs. We have recently set up, you may have seen the uh, the post on the city this week, a special fund because we are growing. 
And because those needs are becoming greater, we have budgeted a certain amount of money for that, but that's not enough anymore. So we have set up a special fund called Meeting Needs Fund where you can contribute to meet the needs, widows and orphans, that we have in our body. So keep that in mind. Second area that our church is working on meeting needs, on caring for each other, is our care ministry. Because needs are not just physical and material, they're also spiritual and emotional. We struggle in life. We struggle in our relationships, marriages, parent-child. We struggle financially. We struggle occupationally. We may be out of work. Our work may not be satisfying to us. Some of us in this room have suffered abuse. Some of us in this room have dealt with addictions. Some of us in this room, including the person speaking, has struggled with their walk with the Lord. The ultimate root of all of this is sin. My sin, the sin somebody else has committed against me. So that means that the ultimate solution lies in sanctification. It is not the biblical model that our care in these areas should primarily be handled by trained, paid professionals. There is definitely a role for trained, paid professionals in our lives when we struggle. But primarily, we are called to care for one another, and we are equipped to care for one another with the gospel. We see it happening all of the time. You meet for coffee with somebody who is struggling in your CG. You call on somebody else to meet with. This is what we're talking about. The plan God has put together is that God uses people who are themselves in need of change as instruments of the same kind of change in other people. That's how it works. We care for one another. To summarize this point, two questions. Is my life controlled by the Father's wisdom? Does my life reflect the outworking of my new nature as a child of God? Test number one, what does my tongue reveal? Test number two, do I care for others as the Father cared for me? Okay, let me help you. The answer to that is no, you don't. But the answer to that is we can move to be more like the Father. Test number three, back to verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We have a problem. Well, we've got a lot of problems, but we've got one I want to address here. And that is this. We have an old nature that's steeped in our flesh, that's steeped in ourselves, that's steeped in sin. And when we accepted Christ, those of us in in the room who have accepted Christ, when we experience the new birth, we acquire a new nature that's fueled and driven by the Holy Spirit. Amen. The problem is that these two natures are in conflict. The old self still seeks its own interest, even while the new self pursues the interest of God. Our new birth does not solve this conflict. In fact, our new birth is what causes the conflict. Without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's not a problem, right? Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What were we doing? We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Yeah, we were among 
whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. And because of that, we were by nature children of God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. But we have a new nature. Even though we have this new nature, temptation still looms, ungodly desires continue to tug at us. So the question James is addressing in the second half of verse 27 is this. Is our life wholly devoted to him? Are we specially his and notably holy? We have, we have a challenge. We are called to a holiness that is lived out in this world, but also which marks us off from it. The church in the early part of the last century was, was kind of characterized largely by a kind of a separatist mindset. The idea was this, whatever the culture was doing, we shouldn't. There was like clear lists of what to do, where not to go, how not to dress. In other words, it was a reactive holiness. Basically, a large part of the church was saying, whatever the world did, we must not do. Television is of the devil. Card playing is evil. The 1950s Elvis and rock and roll Don't you dare move your hips in that fashion. Right? Whatever the world did, we didn't. That was the rule. Now, since then, the pendulum may have swung a little too far the other direction, do you not think? What goes on in the world now pretty much goes on in the church, yes? Do we not see that around us? Not this church, we hope. But the church in general is adopting the world. Here's what James is calling us to do to live by positive Christian standards, not reacting to the world. What the world does, we don't. We have to be here. But responding to the word of God within the world around us. James says we are to keep ourselves unstained from the world. The Apostle John in his first letter expanded on this a little bit. He said this, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what are we to do? How are we supposed to handle this kind of nuanced existence We are to be holy in an unholy world, or to be in the world and not separated from the world. So what is the world? That might help. What is this world from which we are to remain unstained? This world whose things we are not to love. This world that contains desires not of the Father. Commentator J.A. Moitier says this, It, the world is the whole human scheme of things organized in terms of human wisdom to attain a human goal without reference to God, his laws, his values, and his ultimate judgment. The world is, in fact, anything and everything that is at odds with the lordship of Jesus over our lives. Pretty clear, don't you think? Uh, Not quite as clear as we'd like it to be. If we are to live for him in the world, there is a constant issue of commitment. Here are seven words that have haunted me for the last four or five days as I have prepared this sermon. Are you ready? Am Am I his or am I not? 
And here's why it has haunted me. It is likely you, follower of Christ, like me, follower of Christ, have made and maintained a commitment on large things. I will be faithful to my wife. I will operate with integrity in all of my dealings. I will treat others with love. I will give generously. Do these sound like good Christian commitments that I should live my life by? But, here's where the haunting comes in. In the daily pressure of life, it is often the small things that taint. I will be faithful to my wife, yet I indulge my eyes and my mind in things I should not. I will operate with integrity in all of my dealings. Yet I chose to take the extra deduction on my taxes, which I could not actually document. The attorneys are grimacing in the room. I will treat others with love. Yet I harbor hatred for my business associate who got the promotion I so richly deserved. I will give generously except when I overspend where I should not have. Do you see the subtlety there? Do you see how every day it's a constant assessment of commitment? Am I his or am I not? So faced with the world's ceaseless bombardment, its insidious erosion of values and standards, its endless clamor for our time, our money, and our energy, It is easy to adopt a way of life filled with compromise and that is not discernibly different from the non-believers who surround us. We may claim Christ, but it is the rigor with which we carry that choice out in our day-to-day little decisions that proves the quality and depth of that claim. And I got to tell you, this week the Holy Spirit has just all these little decisions you make hour to hour, day to day, has shown me how each one of those, that question has come before my mind. Am I his or am I not? I hope you're haunted too. Good luck with that. (laughs) To summarize, is my life controlled by the Father's wisdom? Does my life reflect the outworking of my new nature as a child of God? What does my tongue reveal? Do I care for others as the Father cared for me? Am I his or am I not? In these two verses, James has provided us with some space to reflect. His words are sharp. They're clear. He leaves no room for wishy-washy religion. What does your tongue reveal? Do you care for others? Are you his? As we move to partake in the Lord's Supper right now, it is appropriate that we examine ourselves. Does our new birth make its presence felt? For to have the life of God in us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and to be unchanged is unthinkable. This time of communion is for believers. If you have not yet taken Christ, have not yet accepted his offer of restoration through the selfless sacrifice he made, I encourage you to contemplate what God has said to you this morning.
And if you have questions, there'll be prayer responders around the corner uh, to answer them and to pray with you. Here at Redeemer, uh, we break off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup. One cup has juice, one cup has wine marked with twine. Um, if you don't know where to go or how to do it, follow the person next to you. They probably are smarter than you are. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for your word. Uh, we're even thankful that it, that it convicts knowing that you are shaping our lives. You are growing us after our new birth. You are shaping our character to be more like you. Uh, Father, uh, help, us, help us give in to your leading. Help us to not resist in our flesh what you would have us to be through your spirit. Uh, help us to just grasp what it means to be an adopted child of yours, Father. Uh, may, may we grow in you. May our lives reflect you. Uh, we, may we be a shining light in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.